So we are still on Sutra 3.8. We spent an entire class on one paragraph, so... Master apparently spent years on 12 sutras. I read that recently. He, he gave Master the way Master Sri Yukteswar had him study. They spent months on 12. And then Sri Yukteswar closed the book and told him he didn't need to study. He would always understand. So I went back and read the first 12 just to see what he studied. <laughs> but I'm afraid the gift has not been given to me at least. I don't know about you guys. <laughs> so... Uh, So now we are on the second paragraph of his commentary. When completely free, the soul merges back into what Yogananda called that watchful state. That's a specific quote. He talked about how he saw Jnana Mata merge into the watchful state. So it's a phrase that he uses, which is a very interesting phrase. Swamiji recently clarified something uh, rather, I read it. Well, he didn't say it recently because Swami didn't say anything recently, did he? <laughs> but uh, he had always quoted uh, the way Master said it was, when I see the personality I have to assume, it feels to me like a hot, a heavy overcoat on a hot day, but then I grow used to it. And I think this was in conversations while he was writing this. He said, but when he has been meditating on that, he realized that Master always had the same personality when he was Arjuna, when he was William the Conqueror, when he was Yogananda, it wasn't like he shifted his personality from time to time. That's why when Swami would talk about various incarnations, he would say, well, you know, you could see the same thread running through it. So what he realized that Master actually meant was when I have to assume a personality, that having to have a personality is what feels constrictive, and that, that got to me just kind of, re, you know, reflecting in an interesting sort of way. Like, who would we be if we didn't have a personality? Because we're so uh, attuned to all of our responses and all of our attachments, all of our desires, our inclinations, all of those different things just seem to be the way we move through the world. But if we were, I suppose, and this is where I was thinking about the watchful state, where you're not, you're aware, but there's no point at which you're defined or identified by anything. And then Master would see that he would have to become defined and identified with that small um, piece of of human potential. And he would feel very confining, because if you've been living in the state of everythingness... Anyway, it was an interesting thought. I can't, I can't even project myself into what the watchful state is, except in the most superficial way. How you would be, who knows? And I don't know. Let me phrase it differently. But it, it was. I can think of it more in terms of being sucked back in than actually being out. That painting of Dana Lynn Anderson's, where it's the cosmos, and then there's these two eyes, kind of peering out from yeah. it. That's the Gita cover that she painted. Yeah, that's true. Or was it Revelations? I don't know which. Yeah, where the eyes are up there in the corner. That's a beautiful painting. Huh, interesting. That's the watchful state, I guess. Huh. But you don't have physical eyes, of course, but still. Okay. Any other thoughts or comments? He says, then he goes on to say that we lose nothing in God and the energy is transformed. 
Um, that's just such an interesting thought. Anger becomes transformed into acceptance and forgiveness. Hatred turns into love. And, and grief, the greatest grief, finds its fulfillment in bliss. The opposite of grief is bliss. It was a very interesting thought. But if you think about it, the opposite of hatred is love. So the opposite of suffering would have to be joy. Swamiji writes in so many places how the pleasure and pain, once you're at a certain point in your spiritual development, they're just not different to you. They're both just conditioned states that fall upon you rather than one of them being desirable and one of them not. And he often has often commented, what difference does it make? And even in behind the greatest grief, it's all going to resolve itself in bliss. The, that was, as, as I've mentioned before, how he said himself that he um, comes to peace with other people's suffering is the realization that the greater the suffering now, the greater will be the sense of relief and bliss when one understands that that was just a wave on the ocean and it wasn't really happening. Pain is the fruit of self-love, whereas joy is the fruit of love for God. It's, that's, a very, that's a very powerful thought and easy to um, understand when you're not in a state of grief. But it's, it's, very, it's a very interesting. But I, I love just contemplating that grief, the greatest grief, resolves itself in bliss. I suppose the greater the grief, the greater the sense of... Grief, is, uh, as a rule, is a deprivation of some sort. That something that one feels, one desires to have, is taken away from you. You know, heartbreak, um, death, um, physical health, youth, um, finances. And grief usually comes because something that you felt was essential to your happiness is taken away. And what... I guess then the opposite of that is to realize that nothing was ever taken away from you and that everything that you always needed was always with you. You just would wake up to that realization. And but that's you know this is a these are long these are long journeys. I think of my relatives who um, suffered the what to them seemed the premature death of a loved one and how there was no context in which comfort could be offered no context that I could offer comfort other than just sympathy. But there was no, no directional, um, no direction. But of course, that kind of grief causes you to ask yourself, for what end was I made? <laughs> Everything that I thought was reality has proved to be ephemeral. Um, so that suffering, I guess, pushes you. And then eventually... And so that's why they become opposites. That's why um, I was quoting on Sunday, there is that line, you know, come to me as sorrow because in sorrow I never forget you because I'm trying so hard to rise above it that I'm always conscious of God. Whereas when ease comes, one just goes along without making that same effort. Those are not um, ideas that the ego embraces enthusiastically. Uh, but but the difference between what the ego wants and the soul wants is very dramatic. And Swami said pain is often the fastest route to freedom. But uh, it's, it's, it's the way Swami talks about it so casually, I, I can't even pretend to talk about it that way because I don't experience them as the same. 
I have a, an intense aversion to suffering. And I've always had an intense aversion to suffering. Of course, that has made me a determined yogi. In fact, that's probably been the greatest incentive for me as a yogi was memories of not in this life because I, you know, nothing much happened to me in this life. But I was born with this intense aversion to suffering. So one can only assume that one has suffered. I mean, that was Swami's simple answer to me. I said, why, what, how would I even know what suffering was? I never suffered. That was when he looked at me and said, past lives, Asha. But think of it, if one has had realities that one deemed essential, and for whatever reason had them taken away, and had to live through that heartbreak, you would not be eager to go back there. And so either, I mean, you know, people deal with these in many different ways. Cynicism is one of the ways people deal with it. They protect themselves from further hurt by, by closing up. And so it's a, it's a certain kind of um, solution, but it's the solution of, of lessening awareness rather than greater. I, I've, I've been thinking a lot about how Swamiji related to, the SR, to his guru bhais and SRF, who so determinedly, for so many years of his life, uh, in, uh, basically in a never-ending effort to, to their last breath, in a never-ending effort um, to make his life impossible, how did he keep from creating karma of uh, hard-heartedness toward them? But I, I don't believe he ever did. I believe he just maintained the same attitude, didn't approve of the behavior, but he never allowed it to become personal. That's very tricky, isn't it? Because otherwise, all you do is set yourself up again, don't you? He said it was easier to love. He said it was easier to love, and I heard him say that. Um, I wish I could say with the same confidence that he did. I mean, it was a heroic effort. But bear in mind, when I asked him about it at different times, he admitted that it took all his willpower, that it wasn't like it was effortless. He, he, he said on several occasions that it took all his willpower to hold that because the temptation... You know, these are, um, these are vibrations of consciousness that have magnetism. That's why we call them satanic because they feel like a conscious force that wants to pull you in a certain direction. And there's a weird kind of pleasure in those negative directions too. I mean, I think we've all felt that. You just kind of want to be angry. It's, it's like a piece of you just wants to go there. And even when you're not happy, you want, happy with it, you want to go back to it. I, I'm just watching my own psychology, which I presume other people follow, where you you can lift yourself for a while and then that was what um, Jamana said when Vasudeva died that the temptation to be sad was almost irresistible that's how she put it and it was like a temptation it would hover it would hover around her like you know the desire to drink or something like that it would hover around and would try to persuade her that it was necessary for her to suffer and you have to say to yourself, why would I want to suffer? If God has given this to me, why would I not accept it? Calm acceptance and joy. But those are all, those are all extremely powerful tools. But they still have to be used. You know, they, they still have to, you still have to break the hard turf 
in order to be able to do that. To be so unidentified with your personality, to just be in the watchful state. I mean, that's where we were starting from, where you can just watch the things that are happening to the personality, but not be sucked into them. And this was also grief. The greatest grief becomes the greatest bliss. Swamiji also, and I'll ask you this, I was listening to him on a, uh, I think it was about Easter, a recording. And he was saying, also, even in the midst of the most, he said, it's the most difficult situations that we tend to tell, repeat and tell our friends about. You know, we, we tend to live again and again, but not necessarily with suffering, but with a kind of triumph, you know, the hard times. And he talked about how even in very difficult times, often there's this sort of undercurrent of, of you're telling the story even as you're living through it. And then he gave that ridiculous example of when he had his recorder at the symphony concert and he pushed play instead of record and heard that man's voice in the middle of the movements of the symphony bursting out into the whole hall. And Swami said, as he described it, it was intensely embarrassing, but even in the moment I was conscious of what a great story this was. <laughs> now, that was mere embarrassment, that wasn't tragedy. But it was interesting, I, I, I could feel the reality of that. You know, when you're living through something intense, there's always a piece of you that, it, that knows that this is an adventure. Even if it's a miserable adventure, a piece of you knows this is a miserable adventure. So there's, you're, there's just that little bit of division, isn't there? And Swami said when he was expelled from SRF and lay on the bed in his parents' guest room and prayed to die, and then when he finally started speaking again and singing, People spoke of the joy they felt from him and Swamiji said joy was the absolute last thing that he felt. And I don't quite understand this, but I've always been intrigued. But when he reflected upon it, he realized that underneath all that grief, there was still a layer of joy. But it's a joy of a different type. It's not pleasure, because you're not having any pleasure. But it must be that awareness that the greatest griefs all end in bliss. It's a divine quality, but it's very subtle to, very subtle to capture. But worth remembering, because, uh, you know, difficult times just strike us sometimes with unexpectedly. And the more we have practiced, and it's, it's, as I was talking last week, you just have to solve all your, your problems on the, the highest direction that you can go to. So, Stephen, you had a question. You know, it, it seems to me that the last, I don't know if it was last year or towards the end, whenever it was, Swami was talking more and more about bliss. He definitely was doing that. And I don't, you know, I don't recall him having spoken that much about it before then, and I never personally really thought much about bliss. Not that I didn't think it was a good thing, but... <laughs> I'm just, in favor of it. Are you in favor of it? It seemed far beyond me. All in favor of me. bliss, yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, it just seemed so far beyond me, and... Yeah. But, um, at New Year's Eve, we had our ceremony here, uh-huh. you know, whenever, recently, a couple of weeks ago. And, um, you know, we had our little piece of paper. So I resolved. I had three. Actually, it was interesting. I had four things that I resolved. And one of them I just could not remember after that. It was so, and I uh-huh. haven't to this day. The other three are with me every day. But one of them was a conscious seeking of bliss. Uh-huh. And I've been, you know, working with that on a daily basis to really just resolve sort of like, you know, what is that? What is it and where is it? And, and it's doable. 
Yeah. You know and, and, the, and have it be the opposite of grief is another way of thinking about it. Interesting. Yeah. Well, this is the first time I'd even yeah. you know, c- conceived of that. And it's yeah. nice to know there's a, yeah. an antidote to grief. <laughs> um, about Swamiji and the bliss, uh, as you all know, because you've heard me say so many times, I had, I had such a powerful first meeting with Swamiji. And I had such a... It wasn't a cosmic consciousness experience that would be way, out, way beyond me. But I felt him in a certain way in that first meeting. And I felt him that way all the way through his life. And I, it, toward the end of his life, it was actually during the, the months that he was living in Los Angeles, that, down at Barabi's house, I, one of the times when I went to see him, because that was the that was during that time in LA is when he shifted into that completely other bhav, and that was the transition point. When then he went back to India, and that was just who he was after that. Um, and it was such a notable shift of his energy. Um, I asked him. I, I said to him, Swamiji, people often ask me if I have experienced you differently over the years. And I said to him that I haven't. I've always experienced you the same way. I don't mean every single encounter, but I've always just seen you exactly the same. I said, your expression of your own consciousness seems to me to have shifted greatly over the years. I said, is that true? He said, yes. So what I saw was, in all those early years, um, he had this job to do. And he really, um, you know, we can look at it and casually think, oh, well, you know, of course he was going to succeed. But it's not a foregone conclusion from his point of view. And the fact that he succeeded was because he applied 100% of his willpower. And while he was doing that, he, it, it wasn't, there was no room for that kind of just let it all go. I don't even know anything. And then when he really had done what he came to do, of course he ended up, among other things, writing this book and the Gita commentary. He did a lot of really great work after that. But he did it in a different way. You know, he wrote so fast. He wrote so easily. Um, and he just, he didn't, he just shifted. And it's like, it's like Master allowed it or Swamiji allowed it. And also, I think also because in India, that was the appropriate bhav to have. And so also, once, once he went to India, which started in 2003, I don't remember exactly when he was living in L.A., it was a couple of years later, because he was already in India at that point. Uh, that was the way to communicate in India. Because what they wanted from him, above all, was vi- those vibrations. And they could feel them. And, so, and, and also, in that atmosphere, you can... The atmosphere creates another bob for you than the Western atmosphere. So shifting to India, finishing his work, and just that stage of his life. And so he did come to that. And then all of us, all of a sudden, are just exactly what you're saying. We're looking at a whole different concept of what it means to be a devotee on this path. When I was in Los Angeles over the weekend... 
uh, some, oh, it was after, it was about, it was finding happiness. We showed the movie and then we asked questions. I was trying to ask, why, think why the question was asked. There was something asked about the succession of Ananda and I was talking about Jyotish and I was repeating, I don't, I don't think I actually credited Swamiji, but I should have. Swamiji said the reason that we need to have a, sp- a spiritual director because at certain points there had been conversation like why do we have to have one spiritual director? Swami Kriyananda, obviously, but why do we still need someone? Well, it helps coordinate the work. There's a common sense element. But Swamiji actually gave a more subtle answer. He said we always need to have before us the example of what the ideal Ananda devotee looks like. Because otherwise, we, don't, we, we, could, we could become um, diluted or confused as to, as to what it means to succeed on this path. And Jyotish and Devi both, they, you know, they just exemplify the Ananda way. And it isn't just a question of their own spiritual refinement, which is self-evident, but they're spiritually refined in the Ananda way. They're humble, they're kind, they're humorous, they're serviceful, they're unpretentious, they're people-oriented, you know, all, all the long list of qualities. But, you know, you could have uh, people in charge who are completely different, people who are quite reserved, perhaps a little distant from everyone, um, not so outgoing in their expression. I mean, you, just, you can make a list. People who are more into power, not less into devotion. It, it's inconceivable to us because we have that example there. But I think also Swamiji at the end of his life was reminding us this isn't just about work. This is about bliss. And that there's a goal here. And that goal is not uh, financial security for the, for the institution. That goal is spiritual freedom for the devotees. I was listening because I've been reviewing mm, satsang in the early 80s and so on. And Swami making a corrective, you know, don't forget, friends, we're here really for joy. And it's nice to be successful and all that, but it's for the joy of the devotees and that's the only point. Because the rest of it is, you know, as he said, when you die in the astral world, they don't ask you if you finally got that endowment fund together. Nobody cares. How much did you love? How much joy do you have? And joy is the solution. It's the antidote to suffering. The practice of joy. Okay, good point. Um, Marilyn, uh, Chandra back there. When, I, when I'm in a, um, a grief mode or a suffering mode, the thought will cross my mind eventually. The fruit of all suffering is self-love. And then all I can think is rats. <laughs> <laughs> and, I have, and I start figuring out how to love. I mean, it just, it's, you know, what can I just say? But see, that's terrific. That's exactly where you want to be. You want to have so much faith in the principles of this path that they trap you. That's, I've had that happen to me many times. I'm on my way just sailing out into a self-indulgent cycle and rats, there's this gate comes down which is my actual faith in other principles and I can't go there. I mean, I'm happy that I'm trapped. And I'm also really happy when my own faith and my own principles traps me. In the moment, I kind of want to kick through the gate and just go down that, you know, the rabbit hole I'm trying to go down, but I'm still glad. It, it does take um, a lot of will to, you know, to get back into the mm-hmm. figuring out how to love right. instead of 
instead of suffering. But um, once I get back there just a little bit, then I say to myself, see how much better you feel? <laughs> and this is the process. This is the path. And you just we just do that over and over and over again. And gradually the, you know, there's always a top and a bottom. There's always a tamasic, a, a rajasic, and a sattvic section. But the whole uh, spectrum moves up. And so the bottom is not so deep as a rule. And the 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 um, duration is generally not so long. But you know, some scars are deep, so when it, it, it pays to remain humble. So that I mean it just pays to remain humble because then you're you know, you're you're ready. Otherwise you become complacent and you're completely shocked and not only do you have to deal with the karmic bomb, whatever it might have been, but you also have to deal with the fact that you didn't think you were gonna have any more. <laughs> <laughs> it's better to just to stay on your toes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just don't think it stops. Swamiji was talking about... Uh, it was actually, in this case, it was a conversation about certain attitudes that some of the SRF leaders have, since, you know, I mentioned them I'm on. And he was talking about, you know, it's not really that, they're, that there's anything wrong. It's just that when you're climbing hard up a steep mountain, you just don't have a lot of time to... Um, to pay attention to your companions or to comment on the flowers if your heart's scrabbling up. And so all of us, you know, it, it, sometimes we just have to concentrate and we can't do everything. We can't be as nice or as generous or as conscious of other people's feelings because there's no margin in us to do that. I remember Swami commented once about a certain quality in a person. He said it really isn't a fault. It's, it's an inconvenience for other people. But it's not really a fault. It's just the way they have to be in order to go where they're going. Because, you know, it's, it's like all these little things. We can't sweat the small stuff. We just have to look for the goal and go there. That's why in Sadhu Beware, Swami says, you know, don't worry so much about whether people understand you or not. If you know what you're doing, just keep doing it. Yeah. So, any other thoughts or questions? So that we get another sentence. We got through the watchful state. No, no, we got past that. We got to the opposite. This was the opposite of grief is bliss. Okay. But then, um, Swami, the rest of what this is about um, is just that, that, that odd uh, fact that the ego never ceases to exist, that we'll always be individual. These, these, that thought actually freaks me out. I... I um, I feel, I feel that sometimes, just like there's no escape. There's absolutely no escape. You, you simply have to face and resolve every aberration in our consciousness. Because every, if we don't, they'll come and they'll unsettle us. They'll disturb our peace of mind. And because we, we can never go unconscious and we can never cease to exist. And even if we try to go unconscious, um, eventually we have to become conscious again. We just simply delay it. I know I've said this to you all. I, that, that realization is the point I can feel in past lives where I've, gone, where I've lost my mind, where the pressure of that ever-existing um, individuality has just put me into such a panic I've, I've gone into lunatic asylums and just hung out there hoping that there was an alternative and I think I hung out there for, for, you know, quite a while until 
on a very, very deep level, I realized there was no alternative except just to get back in the game and try to go forward. So now I, I even when I read these things, I don't focus on it too deeply. Um, you know, you, you, everybody has an edge. And some people have just, and this is somehow this is the one that makes me just a little nervous. The utter inescapability of my individual consciousness and therefore the absolute necessity to purify that inner reality because there is no other solution. Fortunately, most of the time I'm pretty cheery. (laughs) But you know, every so often I read it in Patanjali and then I just skip right over it. (laughs) Um, You know, you cease to... It's also... But it's just interesting to realize... um, that it doesn't cease to exist, it doesn't dissolve, you just no longer identify with it. And that's also the key, um, which is why an excessive sense of guilt over one's flaws does not really help you get over those flaws, because all it's doing is causing you to identify more deeply with them. So the, the whole trick is, is self-forgetfulness and not to identify. It is not creating perfection on that level. Perfection on that level is to forget the individual, to not identify with it. And when you stop identifying with it, the faults also dissolve. But it's a very, it's a very hairline right in there that you have to slide through. Anish Kama? Yeah, the, it's true that the, they say the ego never ceases to exist, but it sure does shrink. Well, it shrinks because you don't identify with it. If you, uh, you get rid of a whole lot of stuff. Okay. I mean, that's possible. Well, and that's you, what you, I, you know, I look you at see, it. But you see the power of Master's personality? You see the power of Swami Kriyananda's personality? That there's a huge, um, extremely specific, individualized force coming through. Um, but that's not ego. I guess there is no ego because there's no... The jiva is not identified with the ephemeral, and that's the definition of ego. But there's a definite individuality. Maybe it's just a semantic thing. It is a bit about just the words, what you mean. Um, but it doesn't have a grip on you. It doesn't define you, is the point. And if it doesn't define you, it doesn't make any difference. It just is what it is. It flows, and you're not, you're not limited by its reality. Swami wasn't in any way limited by being Kriyananda. Yogananda wasn't limited by being Yogananda. I feel intensely limited by being Asha. I feel the boundaries of Asha a lot. And, and I get up to the point, you know, where I have called myself these certain things and this is how I feel and, and I, I, those, I feel those boundaries. I never saw those boundaries in Swami. He, he acted as himself. That was my first experience of him was that there was no boundary. That was what was so startling to me. He just went on and on. He didn't have an edge. Whereas I'm always, I'm always hitting my edges. This is as much as I can do. This is who I think I am. But I never saw him do that. That's why he could paint, write, take photographs, do, you know, do this and this, because there was no point at which the flow of energy stopped. We need to pass it over this way. But, you know, Swami is a, a very real example and he's a very real example in, to my mind, um, the, 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 the footsteps are, are big, but they're walking over terrain that we can follow. 
we can, I feel like we can imitate him and in that way push ourselves in the right direction. That's why I, I think even though he was different and that's why he always was encouraging us, that which I do you shall do and greater things. Just put your attention at the spiritual eye and tell God what you want the melody to say and then just put your hands on the piano keys. Why not? Um, yes. I wonder if, um, following the same line of Nishkarma and your conversation, you know, right here he says, um, after, you know, the, what seems irretrievably lost to us for all eternity, the ego, it is not. And then we go, oh my God, the ego is still here. But then he says, even merged in God as the soul becomes at last, there remains in omniscience the memory of the soul's separate existence apart from God. I don't think that's the same thing as saying the ego still exists. When I think of a memory in omniscience, I sort of think of a, a cloud floating in the sky. Oh, sorry. A cloud floating in the sky that perhaps at some point in time was sitting right over my house pouring rain down on it, but now it's just a cloud floating off in the sky. But what he's trying to say with that point is that when you pray to Jesus, Jesus really comes to you. And, yeah. and it's not just merely a Jesus-shaped object. It's actually Jesus. It's, just a, it's, a, uh, it's a possibility of coming back into form if, right. if it needs but to But even if it's remanifested, no one identifies with it. So one's individual experience of it is different. These are deep waters. Go ahead. <laughs> so my question, I think, is then sort of what is the ego? I know we say that the ego is the um, soul identified with the body, but now we're sort of changing that. And um, so, and does the ego change over time? You know, so that when you're in 500 lifetimes before, you know, the ego was really small and, you know, concerned about making money and, you know, hopefully now the ego should look really different. Is that the case? See, Does the I, ego... I don't, I, I, I'm not, the way I understand the definition of ego, it's not, it's not a thing. It's a vibration. You, the jiva is the, is the continuing, unchanging reality. You can use the word soul, but jiva is the individuality. That jiva inhabits body after body. The size or power of the ego is the extent to which the individual consciousness has allowed itself to be identified and defined by the ephemeral rather than the eternal. So it's not like the ego gets bigger and smaller or anything like that. It's just, uh, and it's, it, that's why the whole picture of it getting littler over time, it's that the identification with the ephemeral um, is, is less intense. It's, it's the identification with the eternal is greater. The, the proportion shifts. You, there are individuals that we we know, who just have no concept of themselves beyond the ephemeral reality they're living now. Zip, period. They're, they are still as divine as they will ever be, but their awareness is entirely focused on the ephemeral. And they might not be egotistical, but they're wholly living in ego. And as we come into this reality we may still have strong identification, but nonetheless, we are also uh, more identified with the infinite, and to that extent, the, the, the grip of the ego has lessened a little bit. But you know, some people even who are devotees still have bigger egos. 
they're still more identified with what they're doing. Even some very spiritual people can still have strong egos. They have a, a lot of sense of power, but they're identified with the, with the personality they're living in. Does that make sense? You, know, it's, it's, it, you have to think of the ego... I mean, to my mind, whenever people try to define it as a thing unto itself, it never, it ne- that never works. If you just define it as the jiva's false identification with limitation, and it's not even the body, the body's just one aspect of it because physical, you have physical ego. I mean, you have ego on the astral and the causal level too. It's just the degree to which the jiva has identified with something other than the perfection of infinity. And the degree to which you have identified defines the the degree to which you are separate from God and which you will suffer. Because any identification with the ephemeral is bound to end in disappointment. It has to. My my real basic question, that the work that we're doing changes that vibration or whatever. That is the spiritual work. The spiritual work is to shift. I mean, see, here it is. It's right here between the medulla and the spiritual eye. This is exactly, and it's a perfect illustration. This is both the spiritual eye and the medulla. This is our individuality. This is why these are opposite poles of the same chakra. This is the chakra that defines our individuality. When our consciousness is centered at the medulla, it's ego. This is the, that's why this is the source of ego. If, we are, if our energy is primarily centered here, we are identified with the ephemeral. If we shift that consciousness to the spiritual eye, we are identified with the infinite. And if you think of it just in terms of energy, there's 100% of energy and 20% is at the medulla and 80% is at the spiritual eye today and tomorrow it's a 50-40 split, or a 50-50 split, or over incarnations, you know, it, it, you get increasingly, you begin to shift the balance in the chakras from identifying with the ephemeral to identifying with the infinite. And so then the ego would change. But there's no thing called ego. It's just one's, uh, one's captivity to egoic ways of thinking shifts. And then, of course, you see temptation comes. Oh, now I'm such a good... Uh, he talks about this, comes up later in Sabakalpa Samadhi. You know, now I could really be a great pianist. So instead of following just my effort to uh, give up all identification, suddenly I become very interested in this one thing. And this was Master's answer. Does it always take such a long time to be realized? And Master said, yes, desire for... And then as Swami said, he kind of left it and let everybody fill in the blanks. You know, perfect human love, wealth, artistic satisfaction. Just a long, a long list. And it takes us away again and again. We're, 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 we're losing that sense of, of happiness comes from the ephemeral. That's who I am. And then something pulls us. And even as you die, you know, this is a... You, you're moving into the light, as I understand this. You move into the light, and then all of those things come to tempt you. And you know, if you if you take them, then you're you you go off into the next cycle, longing, and re, and uh, uh, regret. You know, oh, if only you know, I could have been a better mother to my child. 
And then all of a sudden, whoosh, you get to be, you get to try it again. Oh, you know, uh, oh, I just wish I, I, I long for, you know, that perfect romance. I just really wished I'd had it. Whoosh, you get to go try it again. But if instead you have resolved those, then even if they cross in front of you, you just, you don't lose contact with the light. But it's not easy. And that's also where the masters are helping us. You know, they're um, vibrating. That's why Master said, for those who are faithful to the end of life, I or one of the others will come and help you. And what they'll help us do is they'll just literally, you know, they'll just be vibrating with that light and make it easier for us to see where we're going. Just as it's true in, in this way. I mean, Swamiji had that effect on us always. He would come in and all of a sudden we would remember what we were doing and why we were doing it. And that memory would go into us. It wasn't hypnotism. It would just um, put us back in tune. We'd get the melody again. So you can easily imagine that at the end of life, the presence of the masters there, insofar as we're able to see them and feel them and not miss them because they're hiding behind a sunbeam, it will also pull us that way. So as Master said also, what we're trying to do, you see, we're trying to rise in death. We're trying to rise into the light. He said most people sink back when they die. I mean, just even the, you can feel what people do. It's been a long, hard struggle. And now it's finally over. And I'm just going to rest. And so they fall back into the medulla. Whereas the devotee, the one who's really trying consciously... Um, my story about Paula you know, and her determined effort to go into the light and how hard she said it was to do that. I'd, it may have been it was hard to get out of her body, but I also think she was really determined to get into the light and not just fall back. When, when uh, another woman was dying, I, I went up to see her and she was in and out of awareness. She was just really on her deathbed. I mean, she didn't have the energy or the capacity to get out of her bed and she was asleep when I came in and I sat next to her and she kind of woke up and kind of looked at me and she didn't necessarily, she knew I was coming but she didn't really have a clear concept. Oh, she said, it's you. And I said, uh, you were hoping to see Swami and Master, weren't you? She said, yes. <laughs> you know, every time she would fall asleep she would hope that she would wake up in the other world and uh, so she was a little disappointed to be still here. <laughs> It's beautiful to think about that and you can practice that, you see, in your meditation. That's what we're practicing in our meditation all the time, isn't it? We're trying to see the spiritual eye. We're trying to call on Master. We're trying to give Him our heart. We're trying to hold our thoughts away from the thousand other things that come snookling in there and trying to take our attention. How much can I hold my attention here and how much is it going to get drawn here? And so we're practicing and practicing. Every meditation is a practice for the yogi's final conscious exit from his body. It's a, it's a contest between all the vrittis. And we, we try to train ourselves to keep moving from the medulla to here, from the medulla to here. Keep your mind always at the spiritual eye. Master said to Swami, come down a little as necessary to talk or eat a little bit, but then just put your consciousness back here. Always be fighting that battle to move it. it I mean, this is an extremely subtle thing. Master's emphasis on these as the opposite poles of the same chakra. It's very powerful. And of course we bring the kriya through the medulla and it bends 
and comes into the spiritual light, kind of pulls, it's just pulling the medulla into the spiritual eye. That's what are the, among the things that you're doing with your kriya always. So you're trying to do. Just gather up yourself and redefine it. Okay, any other thoughts? Was there another question? That... Okay, why don't we take a little break then? It's a little early, but let's take our break a little early now. Okay. Okay, everyone. There was a point that I want to expand upon about this whole question of ego and why I feel it's important how we say it. Um, Because people are always using ego as the enemy, and especially people who aren't well well trained in in our path, or who are just beginning on our path, you've kind of gotten this idea that the ego is, is not such a classy idea and you don't really want to have it interfering with your life so much. So people sort of start this vocabulary which is not necessarily really clearly thought out where, you know, it's just my problem is just the ego, you know, it's just uh, I, every time I get into ego everything goes wrong or, you know, I just wish my ego weren't, and they'll talk about it as if it were this, like, if, as if it were Satan in a very real sense, as if it were this dark thing that's always messing up their life. And it, it, ego is not an enemy because it's, it's just a fact of what we're having to work with. And when we think of ego as too much of a thing, especially a thing that we have given a, a veneer of darkness to, and yet we are... You know, the I that I am is the I that's deeply identified. I am my ego. People get it, as I was saying to Chittenbar, they get at war with themselves. And, and it, it, it leads to this shame, guilt, um, anger at oneself, uh, you know, exhorting oneself to do better without really giving oneself the tools to do better. And it's, it, it just doesn't, I've not seen it benefit people to make the ego into the dark force. That's why I don't even like to define it as a thing unto itself. It's just a question of, here's the 100% of my consciousness and what am I identifying with? And it's, it's so much more of a fluid and to my mind a, a expansive and helpful way to think about it. I lived a, lo- a lot of the first years of my spiritual life at war with myself and I really understand what that is to just feel like part of you is lousy and you're always after it, trying to, to force it to be better. And it's, it's, it tends to be very unresponsive. And you're just in a... Uh, you, get really com- you get complexes from that. Whereas if you just think of it as a fluid state of identification, then you can just kind of move through it. And, and you're, you're not your own enemy. You just, oh, I'm, thinking, I'm focused this way, I'll focus this way. It's so simple. Rather than having this ego doing this thing to me, as I said, making it more like Satan than anything else. And yes, that tendency to identify with the limited is really is the satanic force, that's true. I mean, that's what it is. It's pulling and it's in, it's maya. But it's better to impersonalize it and not bring it into the tent with you. Because we can't really... Uh, we're not generally... Generally, when you're thinking like that, you're not sufficiently identified with the soul. 
to be able to really go into the watchful state and see the ego impersonally. <laughs> the ego tends to be you, so if you're against it, you're against yourself. It just, I've not seen it work. Um, Ramani would like to speak. Um, is this on? Yeah, um, Vinny controls it from the back, so it's fine. Oh, okay. Um, down south, when I was um, <clears throat> looking for something to talk about the ego, um, in, I think it was in Raja Yoga, but I came across this little, I used all my little tiny books from everywhere. <clears throat> there was a little booklet of Swami's um, talks on the Bhagavad Gita right. in Stern Grove in 1979 or something. Mm-hmm. And so he, at some point, he's talking about Bhishma. Mm-hmm. And Bhishma with, um, was riddled with the arrows, and, you know, he says it's really graphic. He's down on the ground, and he's got just completely... But he said, I think he said in the Bhagavad Gita, Krish, um, Bhishma goes into... He was the beloved grandfather, too. He's the ego, but he's the beloved grandfather. And uh, he begins to go into um, self-realization. He starts to... uh, This is in that book. He's saying Bhishma starts to hold forth on the great truths. His dying oration as he lay on the bed of arrows on the field of Kurukshetra. Yes. Right. Uh But he's he's becoming self-realized. Right. So the because deal is the ego says, I want to know God. Well, the Bhishma, uh, Bhishma he has to relinquish his, he has to relinquish, Bhishma can't die until he himself chooses to die. Because it's, you know, you, you don't relinquish the ego until you have decided that you don't want to be part of it anymore. It, yeah. Um, self-realized. Well, it's, it, it gets, it gets a little complicated, but yeah, yeah. But in that story, yes, Bhishma is a great soul. He represents the ego because he just has to stay. And then he, he, when he's done, he's done. He lets it go. It doesn't hold him. It doesn't have a separate existence. He just shifts his identity to infinity and then it's gone. I don't know if that was clear or not, but it's an important point because I've seen so many people come to me and they, 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 how do I just kill my ego? I don't know exactly. It's just, it's just not a... It's not an efficacious way to go at it. There's also the, um, the truth that a lot of us, just to get rolling, to get started, if we didn't have a strong ego to push us in the direction of trying to be better and try to be more expansive, we wouldn't get anywhere. So it can be an ally, actually. It's an ally, right. Exactly. The, that identification with the ephemeral becomes intensely painful <laughs> and becomes an incentive to identify with the infinite. All right. So now we're up to Sabakalpa Samadhi. Three, um, nine. In Sabakalpa, the lower Samadhi, there still remains in latent form impressions of objective reality. And I, I love what Swami says. I love this paragraph. No one really seems to know what the sutra means. <laughs> As I have written it, though, very different from one translation at least. And then he quotes this translation. There is the relation of cause and effect even among them, though separated by class, space, time, on account of the unity of memory and impressions. 
<laughs> That's why in the introduction, Swamiji says basically every translation of the sutras is awful, he says. He just couldn't find one that was any good. I don't know what there it comes from, but he says at least what he's written here tallies with the explanation of this state that was given to me by my guru. So in Sabakalpa Samadhi, there remains in latent form impressions of objective reality. So he says, one retains the sense of the reality of his ego and of the world around him as he perceives it through his senses and of all the so-called realities, realities the ego cognizes. If he sees all this in relation to cosmic reality, they assume for him a dwindling importance. Now there again is what we were saying last week about how um, samadhi is, is the beginning he says dwindling importance. So that means that we, we make progress. Once we have this first perception, we enhance it and strengthen it and become strong. So if we, if in Sabakalpa Samadhi one still sees the objective world but identifies with the cosmic reality, the, that world has dwindling importance. But if he sees the cosmic vision in a reverse relationship to his ego and its little earthly realities... These assume for him instead a cosmic importance and his own ego especially becomes inflated to the point where he believes himself to be infallible. It's very interesting. Swamiji always used that as the explanation of what happened to Taramata, um, who was his, you know, his nemesis in SRF because he said she was a person of enormous realization. But it, at certain points he explains that he believes that she had Sabakalpa Samadhi but that because of the power and the expanded vision that she had and the, um, the sense of, of the cosmos, but she began to think of herself, she just flipped it a little bit. Instead of going more and more away from her individual um, relationship to the infinite, she began to try to pull the infinite into her individuality. And Swamiji says she he felt that she um, began to challenge Master and she just began to feel herself to be greater than she was. This is why people can fall from Salvakalpa Samadhi. Swami said himself that he did. You know, that he, he, he argued with his guru. And so you, you, you have this such an enormous sense that you begin, his word is infallible. How could I, everything that I see, so everything that comes through me must be perfect. And you don't question yourself. But of course, you're in a very high state, so you can also recover from it. And Swami tells the story of the message that was delivered to him from Taramata from the other side. Oh, I made a mistake. You know, I just made a goof. And now I've got it straight, and now I'm going on again. Because of course, the errors at that stage of energy, because there's so much energy, they can be big mistakes, but because there's so much energy, there's also a capacity to right the error very quickly because there's not much left. You know, these are, again, these are sutras that uh, we might not use yet. <laughs> but one can, one, one can imagine uh, remembering, you know, being tempted in certain ways and then remembering. And that's what I think that, that all of this study, just as we were talking about in smaller ways, the, the fact that we hear the Festival of Light every week, pain is the fruit of self-love, whereas joy is the fruit of love for God. 
And so there I am suffering, and I'm in pain. And then, and then that darn phrase just comes into your mind. <laughs> oh dear, somehow this must be self. I'm, I've, got, I've picked it up from the wrong side. If I were really loving God, I wouldn't be here. Calm, and whereas suffering in the past was the coin of man's redemption, for us now that payment has been exchanged for calm acceptance and joy. And so we find ourselves justifying our misery on the basis of I'm suffering so much I must really be growing. And then we we hear that phrase, it just comes into our head. Oh, calm acceptance and joy. I don't really have to be miserable in order to please God. And so I'm presuming, of course we're studying this, we're not repeating this every week, but we're studying this very seriously. And we probably have studied this a long time before and we'll probably study it again, I mean incarnationally. And so somewhere these things that are not yet um, practical for us, nonetheless the um, samskars are beginning to be formed so that when the day comes that this is actually um, the edge of our self-expansion there'll be an understanding of it. And even just in, in little ways now, without even having Savakalpa Samadhi, you know, when one feels a certain grace or inspiration running through us, do we um, meld into that grace? Or do we say, oh yeah, look at this, it's really working for me now, isn't it? Yeah. I really felt, I really felt Master speaking through me. And then it, we don't anymore. <laughs> because we've cut that off. It happens to people all the time. A little bit of inspiration and we get all puffed up. We have a little bit of a creative flow and we feel like, you know, now we're really great artists. And uh, do we dwindle our sense of, sense of self-importance? And again, I come back to Swamiji with his endless list of his accomplishments. <laughs> you know, the more, the more that pass through him, the more emphatically his sense of personal responsibility for what passed through him just dissolved. You know, it's just not possible. He talks about, you know, being in impossible deadlines and feeling that this, you know, this book can't be written in this period of time, this music can't be written. And then he, he says specifically, oh, that's right, I can't do it. But God can. And then he diminishes his sense of himself and goes into that flow and then more and more can come through him. I love the thought that of things, the dwindling importance of something. Some of that word dwindling has a wonderful sound to it. So I always paid attention to the sound of the words. Because when something dwindles, you know, it just sort of, it just does that. It shrivels up. It goes away like an ice cube just melts. Okay, any, any other questions or comments? All right, so number 310. When his flow of awareness becomes strong and steady, the vrittis having been smoothed, this upward flow becomes natural to him. Okay. The more often the meditator enters the samadhi state and experiences the strong upward flow of energy, the more his freedom from ego and from the body seems natural to him. This, uh, I, uh, actually I was in Los Angeles, but I've talked about it often here too, about how states of consciousness that seem difficult for someone or simply natural for someone else. And even ourselves at this point, I was talking about that sadhu who says he goes to be with Babaji. He leaves his body and goes 
in his astral body to be with Babaji every winter and leaves his body under the snow in his kutir and Badrinath. And I just, and when Swami asked me about him, I, I didn't know what to say. But I said, I essentially said, I would like him to speak about all those experiences with more awe in his voice and less casually. But and Swami's answer to me was, but at a certain point, it's simply natural. And, but but the, the end of that story, which I know you've heard me say before, but I'm going to repeat it here. It, because I was thinking about that when I was India, in India and I was giving a satsang in Bangalore and I was talking about the fact that I met Swamiji and just closed up my life and went to live in this uh, rural place with nothing going on and I never thought twice about it. And partly because I was in an Indian context, well, what did your parents say? What about your family? And, you know, just the expectation that what I had done was so um, wild and improbable. And I, I couldn't even connect to that thought because what I had done had seemed so smart and natural to me. And I don't know what my parents thought. It didn't occur to me to, of course, I'm American, and they didn't much like it, but... Still, it just like those thoughts never crossed my mind. And suddenly I saw it in right relationship. That it, it's like it was simply natural for me. And for the people who were talking to it, it seemed very far out. And I could suddenly see exactly what Swami was saying. You just, you live in your own vibration. It's very familiar to you. The other part of that was that time when Swami gave the satsang for the sadhaka group, which was called the lay members then. Remember? And he was here and he gave one for the sevakas and one for the sadhakas. That was when he would spend a long time with us. And he asked me what he should talk about. And I said, why don't you talk about what it means to be a lay member? And then Swami talked down, sat down and talked about his own extreme state of renunciation and how, just how completely he disregarded everything about this world and then talked with, literally with tears in his eyes about after he was kicked out of SRF and his parents wanted to put the car that he was using in his name and how intensely painful it was for him to have to own that car after he had given up everything. I mean, who would think he was crying as he told us this? He had tears in his eyes and that was very unusual for him in those days. He didn't start weeping until much later. And then after he had explained to us with tears in his eyes how painful it was for him to own a car and we're all desperately all trying to own cars and he's weeping because he had one given to him and he had to put it in his own name. I, he said, well, Asha, is there anything else I should talk about? I said, Swamiji, why don't you talk about what it means to be a lay member? <laughs> and he looked at me very seriously. He said, Asha, that's all I have been talking about. And it was very subtle. And then he turned to that group of people who are not renunciates in the way that he is and said this, don't even think about living the way I live. He said you could never do it and it wouldn't be right for you anyway. He said just live rightly where you are now. And I guess what he was trying to say was he wanted them to understand where you might be able to go and realize that you're not standing there. So don't even pretend that you're standing there. Just stand where you're standing and move forward from there. But for him it was natural. And, and the other day, 
when I was listening to a tape, a recording of Swami from 1981, it was a, a private conversation around a, tea t- a table with a group. And we were discussing some reality within the community and there was a young family that did not last in our community. And I had gone to talk to them and they had, they had a certain aberration in their attitude, which was also part of it, but mostly they were just saying, you know, if, any, if we're ever going to have a house, if our family's going to be taken care of, we're just going to have to do it ourselves. And I was um, concerned because they did not seem that connected to the community, but I expressed the fact, what they said, and Swami corrected me. He said very simply, he said, Asha, that's their job. Their job is to provide for their family and to make sure that the children are taken care of and to, to make a home for them. Because, you see, it wasn't my job. But, but he was looking at them and they should feel exactly that way. And it wasn't a right of me to think that they should feel as I felt, which is why would I be concerned about any of those things? I'm here for Ananda. This is what I should do. No, their job is to take care of their family. So you, you have to always be thinking about it. You can't just uh, have a dogma or a system where you get everybody in line. Actually, this is only tangentially relevant, but I so love this. This was notes that somebody had taken from a conversation with Swami, and they were trying to organize the housing system or the financial system at Ananda Village. This was, again, 20 years ago. And they were trying to just get the system just right so that it would cover every eventuality and that it would just be in place and it would go. And Swami said, every system eventually will ruin itself, he said, because inherently a system, once it's in place, is not creative and does not have the possibility of reattuning itself to new realities. So you can't, in a spiritual work, get the system in order and then just let it run because it it ruins itself by its very definition. Isn't that an interesting way to think about it? And in a very real sense, that's true about us individually. We, just, we can't just get it all organized and get it all set and have it stay there. I've got my relationship, I've got my job, I've got my house. Because once it's stuck in that form, it, by its very nature, it begins to ruin itself because it's no longer creative and it's no longer reattuning itself moment by moment to what the right vibration is. You know, that's a that's a more challenging way to live. We always want to just get it set up and know. That's why Ananda's you know not that easy. It's easier to live in a system where it's clear cut. This is what I'm supposed to do. I'll be damned if I do that, and I'll be saved if I do this. And so I just do this, and that's why all those systems ruin themselves in time because they're they, they're not creative, and they can't reattune themselves because they just keep repeating themselves. We have to be careful ourselves. It's very easy to fall into ruts. And that's the, that's the scary middle ground of the spiritual path. The great enthusiasm at the beginning just becomes rote and you have to constantly be reattuning yourself. That was true yesterday. What's true today? When I was doing that incorporation project for Ananda, and, you know, in the, at, at night we were going to go forward and in the morning Swami canceled the project. And because he said he meditated that morning and asked Master what we should do now. 
And he said, did you ask Master what we should do now? No. (laughs) I just assumed that the guidance from yesterday was the guidance from today. I mean, you know, just... And I just laughed, and he laughed, and we just went forward. It was like being told, you just... There was a fact. No, it hadn't occurred to me. I just stuck with it. I just stuck with where I was going. I didn't stop to reattune. Swami did, and he said to his own surprise, he received a, a strong contrary message. And that's why he canceled it. Great fun. Well, any other questions or comments? Because, yes. It's the same reattuning process that we use when we go from grief back into joy. It's, it's, all, it's all the same. Yeah, it's a constant creative response. What is exactly, what should I be doing exactly right now and how can I do it? We're never the same. Swami, I, I, Swami one of the things I found again that I remember that I liked Whenever we see something in ourselves, because we are energy in motion, by definition, by the time you can see it, you're already moving past it. So you should never define or identify yourself with anything about yourself that you can see. The only thing that defines us is our aspiration. So whatever we're experiencing, it's, it's energy in motion, and if we can reattune to our aspiration, that's really who we become. It's a, very, it's a very interesting thought. This is all the, the game of not feeling guilt or shame or any of those things because by the time I see it, I'm already going by it because we're energy in motion. We're not static. We're not standing here. No. And it's okay to just dump your emails every once in a while and start over. Yes. <laughs> I met this woman in New York, New York City or somewhere. She'd gone on a, she was an executive in a CBS or something like that and she... Uh, She'd gone on a three-week holiday with no email access. She came back, she had 21,000 emails. She sent a note out to everyone on her email list, and she declared email bankruptcy. <laughs> she said, no, no previous debts will be honored. If you want to talk to me, you have to start over. <laughs> yes, it's just fine. <laughs> well, any other comments or questions? I think then we'll stop for tonight. So we... We went, um, we actually covered a few, didn't we? I will take it. We went from 3.8 all the way through 3.10, 2. Whoa, okay. (laughs)